Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to these verses before us this morning, feel so inadequate to be able to describe the scene, but I pray that you would take your word and make it real in our eyes, in our hearts, as we think together upon this scene before us. Grant your blessing upon all your word today as it's read and preached throughout the whole world as people everywhere meet in various circumstances under various conditions to worship the Son of God. We especially remember believers in the Ukraine today. What will this mean for them? Please hear their cries for help and blessing and relief from the incredible suffering that they are enduring. And please use the gifts that are given today for the ministry projects around the world that they might strengthen the arm of your children wherever they might be. For Jesus' sake, amen. We've been making our way through Matthew chapter 26 and 27 at a steady pace and I hope you've noticed it's not simply possible to cover every detail that the Gospels provide us with. I find it amazing that when we come down to the last week of Jesus' life and all the events that we've looked at in terms of his arrest and betrayal and trials that we've had such a full account of all that has happened. Have you noticed that? It's not the bare minimum of details we're given. It's as if all the Gospel writers had their memory banks switched on and they were encouraged to write as much as they could, recalling as much as possible. Matthew's Gospel is no exception to that rule. It's been said that the events that took place in the lead-up to the cross in Mark's Gospel take up a third of his whole book. And though Matthew's Gospel doesn't quite have that ratio, I think you can see from the fullness of the details that we again see this morning that Matthew wanted us to know everything that happened. He wants us to understand that the death of Jesus was not an accident. It was not a mistake. But it was for the purpose of accomplishing the redemption of his people. Last Sunday we finished at verse 10. We saw that grim passage in which Judas, whose own sins caught up with him, whose own remorse caught up with him, led him to take his own life. And I said then that Matthew put that terrible story of Judas side by side with the denial of Peter, the end of Matthew 26, not only as a warning to us of the consequences of sin and of the deceitfulness of the human heart, but he wanted to show us something of the plan of God that he had from the foundation of the world for all those who would trust in Christ. But it wasn't an accident, it wasn't Judas's fault, it wasn't the Jews' fault, it wasn't the soldiers' fault, it was all in the plan and the purpose of God. 
We come to verse 11 to 44 this morning, chapter 27. And we have three scenes pictured for us. Verse 11 to 26, where Jesus is on trial before Pilate. The second in verses 27 to 32, where Jesus is on show before the soldiers. And the third, in verses 33 to 44, where Jesus is on the cross before the world. We'll look at these in turn. First, we see Jesus on trial before Pilate. And Matthew had already begun to follow the events that came upon Jesus, but then he switched focus for a moment from Judas, from Jesus to Judas. He did that to set up that contrast between Peter and Judas by setting their stories side by side with Jesus in the middle. But then in verse 11, he picks up the story of Jesus again. And he tells us in verse 1 and 2 and from these verses and the others all throughout the scriptures we learn something about the governor Pilate, Pontius Pilate. We learn that he was apparently very reluctant about carrying on this trial of Jesus and certainly reluctant to condemn and convict him. When we put the story together in fact Uh, we find out in John's Gospel that Pilate had by this stage already tried to handball Jesus back to the Sanhedrin to deal with him. That didn't work, so he handballed him on to Herod to deal with him. And that didn't work, but like a package that keeps getting delivered to the same address, Jesus is back now before Pilate. What can he do? His first option was commendable, amnesty, release him. Given that it was his custom at certain feasts to offer the opportunity uh, to release a man who had already been condemned or to spare a man who was in the process of trial and sentencing, he offered Jesus to the crowds. You want me to have him released for the feast? No, we don't. We don't want him. What a dilemma is on Pilate's hands. Uh, Because he is a Gentile, the Jews won't come into his house. Uh, Because he is the governor, he alone can announce the death penalty. And because the Jews want that death penalty, the charge against Jesus has suddenly changed from blasphemy to treason. He says he is a king. He says he has a kingdom. Yet in all of this, the prisoner is calm and does not speak. Quite a contrast to prisoners who probably came before Pilate, frothing at the mouth in anger, asserting their innocence. I'm innocent, I'm innocent. But this one stands quietly. This one will not answer the charges brought against him by the accusers. In fact, the only people frothing at the mouth are the accusers desperate to get rid of him. It's a striking thing to Pilate, especially when Jesus continues to refuse to answer questions. And it's important to note this because it helps us get the picture that Pilate was looking for an excuse to get Jesus off the hook. It's very likely that with a little talking, Jesus could have gotten himself off the hook 
Pilate was anxious for Jesus to supply him with a reason to let him free. And Jesus refused to do it. The reason for that? He's wrestled in the garden with the consequences of obeying his heavenly Father even to the end point and he will not do anything to get him off that hook. So when you see the silence of Jesus, note two things. How committed he is to you that he wants to go through with the plan. And then see... Remember the silence of those who are spoken of on Judgment Day who will have nothing to say before the just condemnation of God. And give thanks that if you're in Christ, you won't be in the silent party. You'll have something to say. Christ died for my sin. Back to Pilate, Matthew reverse in verse 19 to this mysterious story about the dream that Pilate's wife had which adds to the picture and the the trouble that Pilate must have been going through when his wife comes up and whispers in his ear by the way I've had this dream last night about this man have nothing to do with him he's innocent well what have we got we've got Judas saying Jesus is innocent. We've got Pilate saying, I can't find any crime to condemn him. We've got Pilate's wife saying, this man is innocent. Why has Matthew strung these together? He's pointing out the spotless Lamb of God. He's building for you a theology of the death of Christ. He's telling you why the death of Christ is happening. It was no accident. It was not out of the control of the plan of God. It was not something where Jesus did something wrong and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Matthew is saying this. An innocent man is preparing to die. He's preparing you to understand the meaning of the death of Christ. And then he reiterates in verse 20, the chief priests and the elders are still on about putting him to death. The choice is put before the people, Barabbas or Jesus. No, we don't want Barabbas, we want Jesus killed. Matthew goes out of his way to tell us that it was the chief priest and the elders that stirred up the crowds, insisting, demanding, calling for his death. And because Pilate was ultimately a coward, and because Pilate ultimately feared Caesar and didn't want to lose his job and his position and his perks, what can he do? Just wash his hands of the matter. And his accusers mockingly accept it. His blood be upon us and our children. Second, in verses 27 to 32, we have the scene of Jesus on show before the soldiers. On show, not in the the sense of strutting around, promoting himself, quite the opposite, as a plaything in the soldiers' hands. Put on show by them to bring him down, to humiliate him and to mock him. Now we can look at these things that happened to Jesus and 
we've read them before, I've preached in them before, it's an easy thing to have them fill our minds but not penetrate our hearts. In fact, Matthew more than Mark gives us much more detail about all that Jesus suffered. It started in verse 28 when they disrobed him. The Jews of the time could not have conceived anything more shaming than to be naked in public. The concept of public nakedness and the connection of it perhaps goes back to the fall when God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? And yet here is Jesus disrobed before being robed again with a faded soldier's robe of red to mock him even more. The kings in the Near East would have worn, would have worn purple robes as a symbol of their royalty. But this is all they had. It's good enough. And so they robe him in that and then make a crown, a crown of thorns, a mock crown. The rulers of the day would have worn crowns with spikes heading out as if the spikes were the light of the sun. But this crown has spikes heading in, pressed down upon his head. To mock him more, they give him a scepter, perhaps a stick or a reed or a cane. The, kid, the king needs a scepter after all. And because they were preparing to mock him as a king, they placed it in his hand. And they began to prostrate themselves before him, mocking him, pretending him, pretending to pay homage to him, speaking to him as if they were speaking to Caesar in the triumphal processions, falling down before him, King of the Jews. It's possible that the soldiers were conscripts. Growing up alongside Jews, they would have learned to have an intense hatred for them. And now here's an opportunity to mock one of them who supposedly was their king. And then they spat in his face. A spitting in the face of one was one of the worst insults you could give in those days. Nothing short of a physical blow to the head to spit in their face. And we know that the Jews considered the spittle of Gentiles to be especially unclean. And here is the Lord of glory being spat upon by pagan soldiers. Spat upon and then beaten with the reed that they put in his hands. Struck him on the head with the reed, driving the spikes of the thorns deeper into his head. This is the scene of the torture and the mocking of your Saviour. This is what he went through, but this is not all, is it? This was a way that the Romans broke the will of those who were crucified. Something like giving you the spade and saying, right, off you go, dig your own grave. To carry the instrument on which you'll be crucified, on which you'll die the most horrendous death, they laid the cross upon his back. 
but he didn't get very far. By the time he got to the city gates, he crumbled under the weight of the crossbeam. And so the Roman soldiers conscripted someone from the crowd to carry that crossbeam for him. Roman soldiers would never have done that themselves. This was not an act of mercy to Jesus. Oh, that's a bit heavy for you. We'll take it off you. These bloodthirsty men wanted to make sure that the one who was condemned actually made it to the crucifixion site. And so they conscripted Simon of Cyrene, a Jew, from the area of Libya to carry the crossbeam. I wonder if Matthew, in a subtle way, is saying, surely one of his disciples should have been there and done it for him. Yet this stranger is pulled from the crowd, from the multitude, to bear its weight. Jesus suffered. And we should not overlook the enormity of his sufferings, the earthly pains, just a smaller part of the totality of what he went through on that day. J.C. Ryle says, Never let it be forgotten that he had a real human body, a body exactly like our own, just as sensitive, just as vulnerable, just as capable of feeling intense pain. But still that's not all. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus gave himself willingly and intentionally for your sins and took your place. And when we see him doing this, we remember what our sins deserve and we ought to loathe the sin that caused him to suffer as he did. Here is the sovereign one who humbles himself and is humiliated to the depths of the depths that we might be lifted up and share in the wonders of the heights of the heights. And third, in verses 33 to 44, we have Jesus on the cross before the world. I think that if there is one thing that escapes our attention as we turn to the scene of the cross, simply because we're of a different era and a different culture, we miss the concept of shame. We get the idea of pain, we get the idea of execution, but we miss the idea of shame. The Romans used crucifixion as a way of torturing criminals and rebels. Yes, we get that. But to the Jew, this method of execution was both awful and terribly, terribly shameful. And as hard as they are for Matthew to recount, and remember Matthew is speaking to an audience of Jews that he's wanting to evangelise, he's faithful to put it into his context that the one who is put to death this way, even though under the curse of God, as written in Deuteronomy chapter 21, 22 to 23, he is still the saviour of his people. And he does hear this in seven scenes that unfold the truth of what happened upon the cross. 
We see it in how Jesus refused the offer of painkillers, verse 33-34. Jesus tastes them but refuses them. It may kill the pain but he chooses against it and so chose to face death in full consciousness, not be drugged. Psalm 69 verse 21. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar for drink. Even this was part of the plan of God, shown by the fact that God's word predicted this in the Messiah's death. We see it in how his garments were divided. Verse 35 and 36, instead of telling us the pain that Jesus went through for five or six hours, Matthew takes us to the soldiers on the ground gambling for his clothes. Roman law allowed the execution squad to take whatever possessions belonged to the condemned criminal. He wasn't going to be needing them anymore. These men are fulfilling scripture. Psalm 22 verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. We see it written in the written charge against him. Verse 37. Matthew points us to the charge that was placed above his head. The charge is the man is claiming to be the heir to the Jewish throne. Though Pilate objected and wanted it changed, it remained and the charge is fastened the irony of ironies that hits you in the face. It's true. It's true. He's paying the penalty in the cross for being who he is. What's the charge against him? He is who he said he is. Verse 38, we see it in the way Jesus is crucified with these criminals next to him. Again, Matthew is showing us the identification between Jesus and sinners. Jesus and sin, he's hung between two thieves. And Matthew sees this as a fulfilment of scripture in Isaiah 53 verse 12. He would be numbered with the transgressors. Then in verses 39 to 40, we see it in how people mocked Jesus. The bystanders, the passers-by, the Jewish leaders, and then the Jewish, sorry, then the criminals themselves all join in the chorus and sing it one and all. Psalm 22 verse 7. All who, sneer at, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. Again, it's a fulfilment of scripture. And then we see it in how the leaders mock Jesus. And again, we hear Psalm 22 verse 8. The one who is mocking King David Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue you because he delights in you. And then we see it in how the guilty criminals deride Jesus. Verse 44. You might think that an experience like dying on the cross might soften someone's heart a little bit and give you a sympathy to your fellow sufferers. It hurts, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Sorry for you. I'm sorry for you. But it didn't, apparently. Not in Matthew's Gospel anyway. 
at the beginning of the day, both of these men are adding to the mental torture that Jesus must have endured in his body on the cross. Those are the three scenes. No surprise, it's Good Friday. It's no surprise that we're thinking about the cross in this way today. And I feel that I've barely touched the surface of what Matthew presents us. Barely entered the world in which Jesus knew in this time. A world of pain, a world of complete consciousness that this is a deliberate, intentional act. A world of committed obedience to the Father. There is nothing more he could do but obey his Father and yet how awful what he had to do. And Matthew has been emphasising the big picture and the small details that his suffering and his death is not for himself. It's for you. It's him in your place. It's your death, he's dying. And what he does, he does because he loves the Father. And because he loves the Father, he went through with the plan to provide atonement by his death. How wonderful the plan of God. How great the name of Jesus, of whom Paul says in Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My Lord, what love is this that paid so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free. May this morning God bless you with the knowledge of the one who provides what we need. May God show you your need of grace because the moment you see the need, he will show you the one through whom grace is given. Let's pray. We have no words, Heavenly Father. We have no words apart from thank you. To say thank you to you for such a saviour as this. For one who is so willing, so obedient. He did not shrink back, but gave himself fully and completely. He entrusted himself to one who judges justly. And he became sin for us that we might become in him the righteousness of God. We thank you for this great exchange. Him in my place. Him who suffered what I deserved. Help us all to say that today to you. 
he suffered what I deserved. Thank you. We pray in his name. Amen.